Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Our program today is a talk by Eric Davis that's titled Beyond Belief, The Cults of Burning Man. And uh, this is one of a series of audio recordings from our website, palenquenorte.org. And there you can find talks given by Rick Doblin, Bruce Damer, Daniel Pinchbeck, Terrence McKenna, and many others. And I'll tell you more about Palenque Norte at the end of today's program. But uh, before we begin today's talk, I again want to thank my friends Jacques Cordell and Wells of Chateau Hayuk for letting us use some tracks from their Nature Loves Courage CD. So thank you, guys. Now, for today's program, we're going to be playing part of a talk that Eric Davis gave at the uh, first series of the Palenque Norte lectures at Burning Man. And uh, <laughs> the reason I say part of a talk is that we ran into some technical difficulties when Eric was about halfway through his talk. To be honest, I can't remember exactly what it was, if it was the time the generator stopped or one of the times we had to shut down our equipment because a dust storm became so intense we had to seal off all the electronics that in order to save them, actually. I'm not sure we really did save them in the end, but hey, that's all part of what gives Burning Man its intensity, you know? And I know that uh, Eric understands because in the fragment of this talk that we did manage to save, uh, Eric, in what is now somewhat ironically said, uh, part of the experience here is about getting lost. <laughs> and for those of you who may be waiting for our podcast of the real Vagina Monologues, I'm sorry to report that their entire presentation was lost. So the few hundred of you who were there know what a tragic loss that is. But, oh well, there's always another burn. Maybe we'll have a revision of that unique research panel again one day. But, but I digress. Anyhow, my guess is that most of you are already pretty familiar with Eric and his work. But for those of you who are just now joining the tribe, I'll give you a little background. In his fascinating book, Counterculture Throughout the Ages, uh, Are You Serious describes Eric as a 21st century countercultural writer. And he's definitely that, but uh, Eric's roots actually go way back to the end of the insane 20th century when he broke into the mainstream culture, I think, with his book Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. And if you haven't read it yet, you ought to do yourself a favor and check it out. I uh, first heard of Technosis myself from Terrence McKenna. You know, and like a, a thousand other of Terrence's overeager fans, I'd been dumping my ideas about him about the book I was working on at the time, and after I'd probably come close to exhausting all of his patience in his very uniquely Terrence-like way, he said, if I were you, I'd read Eric Davis's Technosis before you get much farther into your work. And uh, <laughs> I have to admit, it was really excellent advice. In fact, I wound up quoting it several times in what eventually became The Spirit of the Internet, which you can read online on our Matrix Master site if you want. And if I can ever find the time, I'll uh, try to put up a PDF version so you can download it. But back to Eric Davis's work. After uh, we play what's been preserved in this 2003 Burning Man talk, I'll give you some information about what Eric is up to these days, including some new books he's written. And for those of you who want to cut to the chase, you can find out more about Eric at www technosis.com that's t-e-c-h-g-n-o-s-i-s.com and now Eric Davis's Palenque Norte talk at the 2003 Burning Man Festival alright thank you very much and thanks a lot uh, to Lorenzo for setting this place up uh, I've been coming to Burning Man since uh, 1994 and it seemed like there was some kind of uh, 
emergent phenomenon this year where a number of these sort of lecture, talking, sharing spaces uh, kind of emerged. And I think it sort of represents a certain maturation and perhaps devolution of Burning Man, but it's a certain phase that comes in where uh, talk in the kind of community that comes about through talk uh, is very uh, is important. And I think one of the reasons it took a long time for that to happen is because in many ways what I'm going to do today, uh, which is to discuss Burning Man, analyze a little bit about how it works, some of its uh, underlying assumptions, desires, technologies, and putting those in a historical context. Where does this come from, particularly in terms of the bohemian uh, underground, and particularly on the West Coast? So in some sense, I'm you know, analyzing it. I'm being a bit of an intellectual, and that's precisely against the spirit of the thing. And I recognize from the beginning, in a way, that I'm that I'm uh, you know participating in what it's almost designed not to do. In a way, out here, we avoid interpretation, we avoid a analysis, we avoid over symbolizing what's going on here because we seek something fresher than that. In some sense, beliefs are a, a sort of after image of something. Uh, more frenetic and more intense. So in a way, I kind of acknowledge from the get-go that this is already involuting, in some sense, uh, what's going on here. But it also represents, I think, a certain maturation, a certain point where we're saying, okay, we have all these technologies. We're learning how to create this insane, amazing social, uh, visual, virtual, vis you know, uh, psychedelic environment. Well, what do we do with it? How do we take it from that? What kind of communities come, come out of it? And language and, and uh, talking your way through it and pulling back the surfaces and finding out what's going on beneath that uh, is, I think, a valuable, valuable tactic. But to be a little more personal, I, uh, I wrote that this is all based on a, on a piece that I wrote that will be coming out in a, in a, uh, a, a collection called Afterburn, which is a, a kind of a neat idea. It's uh, essays mostly by academics, but they're all burners, so it's sort of interesting kind of thing. And uh, I'm going to read, I'm going to kind of go back and forth between uh, the book, or the, the pamphlet that I did, and, and then stop and, and talk about things. But I wanted to start out with a personal experience, since, since of course, of all the cults I'll be talking about, and by cults I don't mean cults in the sort of negative, crazy, charismatic, forcing you to, you know, toe the line kind of cults, but I mean it in the sense that India has cults. In India, Hinduism is not a, a single religion. No, no religion is a single religion, but Hinduism is really not a single religion. It's a collection of sects and cults and mutations and malformations and appropriations that, you know, occur in a certain environment, share themes, share gods, but it's a, it's a real chaos. And that's sort of what I mean by cults, and I'm kind of pulling out a, a few examples of them, that what we see here. Uh, not in a theme, uh, theme par uh, park sense or a theme camp sense, but something a little bit more underlying. And the primary cult, which I'll talk about in a bit, is the cult of experience, the idea of experience, of, of burning everything that's in your way to get to experience, whatever that is, and, and making space for something spontaneous, unexpected, immediate, overwhelming, non-linguistic, terrifying, awesome, making room for that to happen. So I thought I'd, I'd set out with an experience that for me captured a lot of the, the peculiarities of uh, my topic, which is really the question, how do we talk about Burning Man in terms of sacred forces, spirituality, 
mysticism, the religious impulse? It's a very tricky question because these words are all very loaded. They're all a little dated. They're all a little crusty. You know, they get in the way more than they, they get us to where we want to go half the time. So it's a tricky question. But this experience I had really captured something uh, for me. It was, uh, it was last year uh, during the Floating World Incarnation. So I, at that point, I finally got around to doing a shtick that I've been meaning to do for like five years, and I drag the stuff out every year, and I just inevitably neglected to do it out of sloth, inertia, excess, whatever sorts of reasons prevent you from manifesting all your plans on Burning Man. But basically, I just uh, had a, 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 a snorkeling gear, and I had these huge yellow duck fins, I mean, hilarious goofball duck fins, and I just went out on the playa, lay down a cheesy, you know, beach towel, and got into a full lotus position and meditated. So it's like just to go out there, but really meditate, not do, you know, not just sit there to perform or be an object for people's cameras, but really actually kind of to do this. So, you know, as a statement, uh, I guess you could say I was performing my response to Freud's dismissal of the mystic's oceanic consciousness as an infantile resubmersion into the womb. That's what Freud said. Mysticism is just going back into the womb, all that m melding with oneness. And I was, so I was like, well, if we're in the ocean, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's swim. So I'm sitting there, and uh, the first, I sit down, and immediately I, my eyes are closed. I can't really, you know, see anything. This woman comes around, and, uh, or I found out later because I could see her, and she sort of had, just happened to have some sage, so she, like, you know, blessed the space kind of instantly as soon as I sat down, and then I kind of entered into it. Actually, would turn out to be a very powerful meditation very quickly, very centered, focused, still, letting the sounds surround me, but not being very aware of the sounds, but not necessarily focusing in and identifying anything. It's one of my favorite ways to move through plyo space, especially at night. Go out, close your eyes, and just like move through the mix without grabbing on anything and see how it kind of mixes up together. So I was doing that in my head. And you know, it was the floating world. And I thought, you know, one thing we're going to see this year are a lot of pirates. You know, the whole army, and you know, and all sorts of varieties of that where they're uh, a certain kind of, you know, crazy, excessive, almost, you know, frat, bi frat boyish punk energy in using the pirate mask as an excuse to be goofy and excessive. And so I'm sitting there and I could hear them coming. And I'm just sitting there. Eyes are slightly open, but basically I'm not seeing anything. And then suddenly I hear this. And then this pirate tackled me. And he had this plastic knife, and he like looked like. And I'm sitting in a, you know, sitting like this, you know. So I'm like a like a weeble, you know. I can't. I'm like rolling around like this. And he pulls out this plastic knife, and he like, you know, pretends to like chop my head off, and he yells down my snorkel, ah, you know. And he just like rolls me around a little bit, and then he kind of just sort of popped me back up in my little place, and then just ran off. <laughs> you know, which which just in itself I find really admirable because. One of the things that doesn't happen here enough is that people have their trips and they're doing their trips and they kind of go by and you go, hey, good trip, hey, we've got a cool little weird thing going, but the inter like the kind of almost sort of chaotic interaction doesn't always happen as much as it could. So my hat's off to the pirate who just fucking, you know, whatever, just leapt in there and, and thrashed me. But the thing is, is I was sitting there and what, what uh, you know, this guy probably did not know about, let's say, 
there's a, an image of a Mahavidya in, in Hindu, Hindu Tantra where she sits there with a severed head and she's holding her head and the blood is spurting out of her neck into her, you know, into her followers. Or he probably didn't know about the Chud practice, which is a Tibetan uh, practice where you face the demons of the ego by going into nasty charnel grounds and inviting all the most terrifying, evil, scary, flesh-rending demons to take you, to take it of you. And you go into the fear, into the horror of it. And I was sitting there and these resonances start to, to hit me and I start to go, my God, what's going on here? And I, I, uh, you know, I, so I ride with it, just return to my meditation and then it just opened up and bloomed and I had this extraordinary, explosive, blazing kind of hit of this compassion and suffering and the whole kind of, you know, thing. But I'm sitting there in these ridiculous duck flippers with a, you know, a snorkel on and I, you know, I'm crying so the snorkel's filling up and all these goofballs are coming by and taking photographs of me. So I'm having this like totally juxtaposed moment of the sacred and the absurd. And that's in many ways where the sacred is here. It's not in the sacred. It's in this juxtaposition. It's in this kind of space in between. And that was, uh, you know, for me, very inspiring moment. So when I saw that this year was beyond belief, I was very, very excited because I was always been like that sort of the side of Burning Man that's always referred to and yet we're not really sure what do we mean, are we really doing something sacred here, are we not doing something sacred here, and it's really hard to say, you go around and ask people, you know, a third of the people say, yeah, this is really part of my whole, like, you know, exploration of myself and what, it, what the cosmos means and what the forces are that are driving history, and how, uh, another third of people are saying, fuck no, man, I'm here for, this is great, I'm, you know, I'm partying, I'm getting wild, I'm getting raw, I'm not, I'm not interested in any of that kind of stuff, and there's all these ranges in between. So how do you talk about it? And so the way I tried to approach it was to look at certain aspects of the burn and kind of peel back the layers and try to understand kind of where they come from, because everything has a history. And out here we sort of celebrate a certain kind of lack of history, or we sample history in such bizarre fragments that it detaches it from the kind of more organic, settled, structured kind of way in which we usually think of ourselves as whatever, Americans or Californians or artists or all the ways that we tell stories that organize our subjectivity. Out here it gets all mixed up. But there's history here too. This didn't emerge out of a void. And so that was sort of the way I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. So most of what I'll do now is just pick a few of what I'm calling cults and then just put them in a little bit of a historical context. And the reason I think that's an important thing to do is because especially in a highly fragmented, mixed up, uh, sample-delic, excessive information overload environment we live in, it's very, very easy to, well, get lost. And a lot of this experience here is about getting lost and then finding something that's maybe not yourself, but you're finding something and then you get lost again. And historical resonances, understanding where things come from, that there are traditions, underground traditions, more secret traditions, people who were doing the same kinds of things, I think is a really marvelous way to sort of orient uh, yourself in the midst of the, of the chaos that comes along. So I, as I said, the first, uh, the first and sort of most primal cult here uh, is what I'm calling the, uh, the, the cult of experience. Um, on this year's uh, website, and the, like the first line was Larry Harvey's idea, beyond belief, beyond the dogmas, creeds, and metaphysical ideas of religion, there is immediate experience. 
Now, that's a powerful idea, but I've got to tell you something. At this point in the history of Western consciousness, of global consciousness, that idea itself is a belief. That's a belief. And that's not necessarily an unproductive belief, but it's a belief. It's a construct. And it's another one that we work within. So one of the ways I was getting asked, like, oh, yeah, there are some, like, we are. We say, oh, we don't have any dogmas here. We're all open. Yeah, but there are some things that we really take seriously. And one of those is about taking, staying really true to experience and coming back, uh, you know, to experience. On the most basic level, the cold of experience makes itself known through a continual parade of intense and not altogether pleasant physical sensations. The brain-numbing heat, porta potty stink, crusty snot, the dry, cracked feet. These offer continual reminders to you and your body that something is definitely going on here. The cult also manifests itself in the pervasive mode of seduction. The blinky light or exotic body or hilarious shtick that seeks to distract you from whatever goal or concept you were writing in order to draw you ever more deeply into the wildfire of energetic activity blazing in the here and now. Burning Man, in this sense, represents the ultimate attention economy. What participants exchange are the willingness and the opportunities to submit to new experience. These experiences, in turn, create stories which become the coin of the realm, fetishes traded over the fire, always pointing to the mysterium tremendum of consciousness itself. And what the thing I wanted to you know, talk about is that, in a way, that's sort of the... the the battle or the, the trick or the puzzle that we face, especially as Burning Man ages. If you've been here for, for you know, numbers of burns, you see the way that certain things become solidified, inevitably. Routines become established, ways of communicating, people bring back the same camps, they have the same shticks. And so it's this weird kind of battle of like, how do you create a space for genuine novelty so astonishment can crack back in again instead of just relaxing into the mode that has already happened. And that's this kind of constant desire to crack open and go back to experience. But experience itself, the idea of experience being uh, uh, a spiritual good, is itself a very powerful and very strong idea in American religious history. And not just in Bohemian freak world, but in American religious history, it's a powerful idea. I was enormously overjoyed when we came into the playa, and, we, and I don't know how many of you read the quotes as you came on in, and a lot of those quotes are precisely the kind of people that I have been talking about in, in this pamphlet that I was wrote, wrote about. William James, uh, a lot of, Gary Snyder, other California figures, Robinson Jeffers, Krishnamurti, there are a lot of these figures who are themselves concerned with this question of how you make experience rather than dogma or rather than religion, the kind of part of what it is you're after. And so, you know, when William James a hundred years ago writes the varieties of religious experience, I mean, it was a bombshell. It was nobody, nobody had thought that way before. He was the first person to say, hey, we have to take consciousness, the subjective unfolding of experience as a primary center of where we understand what's going on with the world, with the self, with the mind. And that when you come to talking about religion, even like, you know, real religion, capital R, you know, holy rollers with their snakes, you know, whatever, uh, in, in those kinds of religious forms, you can't always just look at the dogma, at the belief system, 
as freaks, we tend to be very, very, you know, wary of belief systems. We think, ah, you know, that's precisely the trap. And yet in all religions, there is cores of experience. And those experiences then become shaped and narrated by the forms of the religion. So that at the core of uh, uh, the Christian revivals that raged across the United States in the middle of the 19th century, people were going apeshit. This was not even just the, oh, Lordy, I'm there. They were rolling in the ground. They were frothing at the mouth. They were having basically epileptic fits. So they're having these tremendously explosive altered states of experience. And then those states of experience, which are opened up, become reconnected to a belief system, a dogma, a ritual system, a set of authorities and institutional structures. And that's a lot of what happens with religion. It's not just mindless zombies who are believing things in order not to face the void at the heart of it all. A lot of them are people who have found themselves there through experience that then becomes organized through a story. And in a lot of ways, I think what we do here at Burning Man is that we are aware of the the constructed nature of the frame which we inevitably build around our experience. We have these open, wild experiences, and then we build, you know, we play with structures. Well, this might be, you know, a Shiva lingam here. So this is this resonance, God, religion, and then you're like, yeah, but it's just some guy put some, you know, plaster of Paris and got some blinky lights over here, and it all kind of falls apart. So it's like we're constantly riding this line between form or construction or narrative and this sort of void uh, of experience and bringing ourselves constantly back to that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of intensity. If, if William James is kind of the intellectual or uh, uh, religious historian who kind of sets up an emotion which we're experiencing, and by the way, we, we must recognize William James as a core ancestor, not simply because he started to say, hey, you've got to look at all these weird states of consciousness that people are in and start taking him seriously. But the man put his neurons on the line. He huffed the nitrous, he huffed the ether, and he puked on peyote. So he was doing it. You know, he, was, he was testing it. It wasn't necessarily his core. Uh, he's got really, really funny writings on nitrous. Really, really good stuff. <laughs> Um, but the other really important kind of predecessor here is, uh, let's just call it the 60s spiritual counterculture in a way that's kind of a very vague, easy term to, to overuse. But there's a lot of ways of talking about what happened in the 60s. And the thing that I'm kind of really interested in is that whatever people were believing about what was happening, whether the revolution was coming, whether psychedelics were the gateway to a transformed civilization, whether the Hindus always had the message and now we're bringing it in, whether, you know, Zazen was the way, whatever their belief systems were, what was actually happening was an explosion of alternative consciousness technologies. And by technologies, I don't just mean material technologies or electronic technologies, although there were lots of those, more on that in a bit, uh, but also te techniques, techniques of the body. So you enter into yoga not because you necessarily have a belief about becoming a yogi or becoming enlightened, and maybe you even have those beliefs because people around you believe them. But what's really going on is you're changing your, your neuro, bio, etheric, internal state by practicing, by doing practices. And so what you had in the 60s is this generation exploding and exploring as many practices as they fucking could to find other states of consciousness. Now, it's no accident that this was the generation that grew up in the post-war boom 
in the realm when television entered the home, transistor radios, when they hit the 60s, they get the pill. There, there's a distribution of alternative media technologies, very powerful. There's the, the whole earth review uh, uh, world, the whole earth catalog, where all the stuff in order to build your new life. Like a lot of back to the land wasn't just eco-romanticism. It's like, how do we actually get back and build things that are going to work in a different way? Like there was a, a famous commune in the, in near Taos, New Mexico, called the Reality Construction Project, which I think really captured that spirit that, like, we don't know exactly what we're doing, we want something really good to happen, but we got a lot of tools, and let's check out the tools. And, you know, things happened, this and that, the 70s, a lot of different stuff we can go, go into about what happened with that kind of spiritual impulse, where those spiritual technologies wound up. But in a lot of ways, they wound up in this. This is an aspect of this kind of environment. I mean, the New Age is that too, brain machines. All sorts of things are coming out of this impulse that, hey, we can use techniques, we can use technologies, and whatever else they're going to do, they're going to deliver altered states of consciousness. And those are points of meaning, points of reference, points of confusion, places where we dissolve ourselves and see what comes out the other side. And in a way, what we have here is an extraordinary celebration of the vast multitude of these technologies of, of altered states of consciousness. And, and that is one way in which we kind of carry on this tradition, even though it doesn't look like a tradition in, in terms of, you know, there's you know, these guys who did this one thing and we're doing exactly the same kind of thing. But there are some really, really uh, important, fascinating kind of press. And I think the, the one that I'm, I'm most sort of uh, into invoking at this point is, is Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Put Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters in question as you go like, okay, the Merry Pranksters, West Coast uh, uh, situation, Ken Kesey's in Stanford in the late 50s, starts... Go, you know, going over to the uh, government-sponsored, you know, medical research facility and start doing these funny drugs because the government's really interested in these funny drugs. And some other characters start doing this, and so they, uh, they uh, you know, explore the psychedelic space, and then they get really wild, really crazy. I mean, basically, the, this, I have one line here, i got to pull it out here. The 60s does not get more Burning Man than the idea of a gas-guzzling art car driven by a macho meth head hurtling down mountainsides with festooned crazies, shooting film and barking bullhorn commentary through squealing speakers strapped to the roof. And that was basically the pranksters bust further, which crossed the country. And they had the, the kind of wild, chaotic, spontaneous, raw energy that we see here. So it's like, you get, it's an interesting question. Is it spiritual? Is it religious? Is it mystical? Mm, hard to say. When, when the Keezy and the Pranksters, when they were on that first big bus trip, they went east to go, to go to Millbrook, which at that time was the mecca of psychedelic culture in the United States. It's where Tim Leary and uh, uh, um, Ram Dass and all those characters, Ralph Metzner, all sorts of people set up, and they were bringing all sorts of people in and really checking stuff out. And that's where they really had the idea of set and setting. But the Millbrook people were really into spirituality. So they said, look, we can take the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and the Tibetan Book of the Dead is a map of the psychedelic world. It's a map of the other worlds. And so they took their religion really kind of seriously, in a way, as a map to explore these new psychedelic spaces. Then the pranksters showed up, and it was like oil and water. Those guys did not get along very well. That was all way too stuffy for them, way too academic, way too kind of uh, poofed up. And so what we have here on the West Coast, and this is a West Coast baby that we're in, in many ways a California baby, is that kind of psychedelia, where you go, 
You know, whatever we're really looking for in that spiritual map, in that spiritual model, in that God form, in that ritual operation, is something raw and chaotic and open-ended and scary and awesome. And the, what we do as, as reality constructors is to set up environments where uh, that can be the case. And so... Um, so the pranksters did did a lot of stuff about setting up these kind of chaotic kind of kind of kind of environments, and of course I probably won't be sort of blowing anyone's mind by saying that in many ways uh, Burning Man represents the sort of leading edge. It's a bad word. The ultimate petri dish, whatever you want to call it, for contemporary psychedelic culture, and it's as if the feedback loops between the external environments and the internal space are getting faster and weirder and more uh, opened up. So like with pranksters, with pranksters in the 60s, you know, they did a lot of the same stuff. They raided thrift stores, dressed up in crazy costumes that sampled all sorts of subcultures and times and places. They got as much fucking technology as they could, old shit stuff that we just laugh at. Set up multiple speaker connections, you know, crazy light shows, show lights everywhere, make a chaotic kind of environment, throw people in there on lots and lots of drugs, and just see what happens, you know. And now, like, the drugs are a little bit, you know, we have a different range, different variety. There's research chemicals that you can continue to tweak, and our light technology is, like, you know, exploding like mad. But in a way, we're continuing the same kind of process. You know, the context has changed, but the, uh, but the environment is, uh, is, is very, um, very similar. To kind of finish the little sort of psychedelic section again as I come back to this question of spirituality. It's one of the most vexed and kind of persistent issues in Western psychedelic, you know, underground is, you know, are these things spiritual tools or not? You know, for some people, that's it. That's their, that's their way in, and that's even where they stay. Or then you have people who, like, blow their minds out on LSD, and then they get into, you know, Zen, or then they get into Hinduism or whatever, and that's their kind of route in. But then there's a whole other set of people who are like, mm, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of another another weird thing in the mix, but it's not necessarily very very spiritual. And what's interesting about and what I, one of the things I very much admire about Burning Man is the way that it makes space for both those kinds of approaches. That it it allows you to experience the profundity that may arise from the simple, plain, and maybe somewhat disappointing fact that it's really just simply neurons in your brain getting tweaked by little little molecules that are bouncing around and playing with percep your perceptual system as if it was a mixer. Well, I can bring up the gain on this one, kind of do the flange on that, and then a lot of the stuff we see around here is doing the same thing with technology right. back. So you're like, oh, I'm in a flange loop here where it's playing with my tweaks, echoing double image, and it's taking advantage of that to do some trick, and that's fun, so we get these kind of feedback loops. You know, I, I'm sorry to say, but that might just be this kind of empty, flipping, weird machine that does, offers no real transcendence. And yet, at the same time, the gods always come back. They have some way of continually to reassert themselves, and I mean that in the broadest, most undogmatic sense, or the spirituality or the call of transcendence. And the ability to be in between those and to have both of those as possibilities so that you're sitting there and having this you know, deep, amazing, you know, uh, heart-rending consciousness all being experienced while all this corny stuff is happening all around you and, you know, pirates are tackling you and all that. That is, you know, in, in many ways, that's the point where we're moving. 
that's where the spiritual that's where we can leave a lot of the drudgery and the dregs and the bad ideas and the uh, institutional errors of uh, conventional religion or, or conventional spiritual trips kind of behind but it's a tricky path it's a tricky path a lot, of, a lot of dark spaces to get find your way in out there so it's a real interesting space that way I was talking a little bit about um, the uh, the light technology and for this one I'm gonna if you don't mind I'm just actually gonna read it because it's I think kind of a of all the little bits I did, I think it's the one that's the most interesting in terms of giving you some context for the kinds of things that are happening with the, uh, with the technology uh, around here. So in his uh, 1970 media-free classic, Expanded Cinema, Gene Youngblood defined his era as the paleo-cybernetic age. Pumped up on Marshall McLuhan and the cult of experience, Youngblood sensed a new phase of culture and humanity emerging one that unleashed the liberating power of archaic consciousness into a technological society whose growing understandings of cybernetic systems, cognitive, technological, anthropological, was laying the groundwork for radical change. Youngblood saw the paleo-cybernetic age reflected in the media experiments he talks about in his book. So he talks about all the light shows, he talks about all the expanded cinema, people uh, creating great big balls where they're projecting images on it, the kind of stuff that you eventually see watered down and, and kind of more or less commodified and commercialized in the, in the kind of hippie uh, light show scene. But it comes from things that are much more uh, sort of earlier and obscure than that. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones in, in, in California history is in the late 50s, uh, these two cats named Henry Jacobs and, uh, I'm going the name because I'm kind of a little spaced out, uh, Jordan Belson, um, they had the, uh, they were the first people to do planetarium shows. So they had the planetarium in 1957, and they had like 300 speakers all around in this kind of dome like this. And they did a whole huge array of like, I think it was about 250 projectors, and there were projectors going through prisms, and you know they were playing mostly abstract film, mostly abstract cinema, and it's like what the, what's going on there, and what you have is this very kind of West Coast appreciation, both for this chaotic kind of wild, undetermined space, and a real appreciation of the, of the alternate consciousness available in media technology. Because the way that media technology has functioned, particularly on the West Coast, has been very different than other places in the industrialized world, where a lot of the, a lot of the spirit is where we just get our hands on the stuff and really start um, playing it together. So a lot of the kind of light show stuff comes here. It's the light shows in, in San Francisco that really does that. And we're really part of this line. It emerges from that. And I'm, be, I'm not being parochial saying, like, there's all sorts of people doing stuff all over the world. And his Gene Yagmo's book is full of all sorts of stuff. But there was definitely kind of a, a, a core power here, what it, what it Belson called his place, a pure theater appealing directly to the senses, to that sense of, uh, uh, of immediacy. And, you know, one of the more kind of uh, sort of developments that come out of that is the, um, the sort of visuals you see at raves. Like rave culture was really a place where a return to that kind of light, light technology, the projection technology happened, but in a different key. In that situation, we move very noticeably from an analog to a digital form. And all of us here must be very, very conscious of the qualitative difference between moving between an analog and a digital One of the sad things, though, is that, you know, is that the role of fire has changed so drastically uh, in Burning Man. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a boring and, and sort of easy game to go, well, you know, back in the day, 
But back in the day, fire had a had a much mightier kind of uh, power because one of the things you're always sort of at once we're at once we're producing here and trying to avoid is the, uh, the, the the spectacle, the society of the spectacle. Society of the spectacle is the society we live in out there, where there's these concocted virtual lies, images, set hard cells, advertising, creating these kinds of environments to distract us, to, you know, you know, in some ways teach us, sometimes they're marvelous, but a lot of times it just gets a bit much. And out here we have kind of a parallel. It's like we image it and break it down at the same time. Image it and break it down. And, and what's happened with fire, and for reasons that are completely understandable, that make absolute sense in terms of the organic development of the uh, event, is that fire has become more of a spectacle. Whereas, you know, back in the day, my first burn, that thing fucking fell, and it was just toxic, burning, hand burning, hair burning, madness, you know, I mean, it was just in the house. And you can't sustain that kind of openness. You can't do that. So that we, we develop a very different kind of relationship to fire. So fire becomes sort of integrated into this whole realm. And it's the light technology that's really kind of pushing in a lot of ways now, even though the, in many ways my favorite things are still things that use, use fire. It's amazing how much fire can trump the most amazing blinking light array. You know, all you need is one little burst and you're, and you're, uh, and you're there. Two more cults to go. Next one is uh, called the cult of juxtapose. What I mean by the cult of juxtapose is the, uh, basically a collage effect. You know, collages as art, you know, are a distinctly modern 20th century phenomenon. Of course, people have been collaging things forever. But as an idea of like, let's take, let's appropriate chunks of other stuff, stick it together, see what happens. And one of the effects that collage can produce is this thing that I'm calling juxtapose, which is where you have two elements that are slammed up against one another, but they don't really synthesize. They kind of crackle with each other. And there's something about that crackle, that um, little mind jump where you're not sure which frame to read it in, that is really, really at the core of of the aesthetics here. And again, because I'm going to forget a lot of stuff, I'm going to go try to grab a little bit of it here as I'm... I'm, uh, as I'm reading. Oh, here's a, this is a good little part here. All right. Um, uh, one often hears Burning Man dismissed as a theme park, but what's important is that it contains thousands of theme parks, little pocket universes, budding heads. Space-time itself seems to morph into a flea market, a masquerade of memes for the Moss Eisley spaceport from Star Wars. Even though many of Burning Man's camps and costumes are in themselves devoted to a particular theme, the bayou, Bedouins, octopi, whatever. These elements inevitably crisscross in the turbulent, constantly flowing serendipity of playa life. Here, juxtaposition is revealed as the basic formal operation of synchronicity. Synchronicities happen when juxtapositions leap and make some new third thing happen, as two apparently unrelated events or elements suddenly form a secret link that's a secret link that that oh, I can't believe we didn't get the whole thing. But all is not lost, you know. If you Google Eric Davis and that's Eric with a K and in quotes, you'll get at least uh, at least twenty thousand more hits than you can handle. 
I think the best place to begin is uh, Eric's personal website, which, as I said earlier, is technosis.com, www.technosis.com. There you can find more information about some of Eric's books, including a new one from Continuum, which he wrote about Led Zeppelin. Also, uh, Eric has a new book schedule for publication in the spring of 2006 by Chronicle Books, and personally, I'm really looking forward to this one. It's titled, The Visionary State, A Journey Through California's Spiritual Landscape. And I understand that this book is going to be a photo-illustrated history of uh, California's alternative spirituality. And to be honest, I don't know anyone but Eric who would be courageous enough to tackle that story. You know, I'm sure he's going to educate, entertain, tickle, amuse, and probably piss off almost everybody. And after all, isn't that what a countercultural writer is supposed to be doing? Anyway, you ought to go to technosis.com and check out some of Eric's writings. He's, uh, he's put quite a few of his essays online, actually, and, and also provides links to some of his more famous pieces that he wrote for uh, Wired magazine. On a personal note, I, I want to say that, that without Eric's help, the Palenque Norte conversations probably would never have become a reality. He was the first person that I asked if he'd give a presentation to Palenque Norte, and not only did Eric say yes right away, but he even helped us enlist the other speakers. Of course, I would also like to thank all the Palenque Norte volunteers, especially Drew, who without whose, his help, you know, these talks would never have taken place. So, And finally, of course, you know, all those who brave the incessant dust storms to hear Eric in person, hey, thanks for being there. If you'd like to see a picture of Eric uh, when he's delivering this talk, by the way, just go to our Palenque Norte website. In fact, we've got a small family of websites under the Matrix Masters banner. So if you go to matrixmasters.com, you can find links to our alternative news summaries, our Dotnetter experiment on Planque Norte, you know, that's where we keep our selection of uh, MP3s, is PlanqueNorte.org. So if you want to go right to the audio section, just go to P A L E N Q U E N O R T E.org. Well, that's about it for today. I do hope you'll join us for our next edition of the Psychedelic Salon when we'll be presenting Daniel Pinchbeck's uh, 2003 appearance at uh, Burning Man where he gave a talk titled 2012, A Change in How We Experience Time. And trust me, you really don't want to miss this one. Thanks again for joining us today. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.